We were just talking about different ways of thinking about Christianity and how for us as Protestants, we noticed that it doesn't seem like we care about the body as much, right? I'm talking about me going to Israel and then not feeling something when I feel like I should be feeling something. When I'm in these places where like supposedly Christ was crucified, not that I didn't feel anything, but when I see other people expressing themselves by like kissing the ground or weeping, it makes me question, okay, what is the balance between how much, what's the word, <laughs> emphasis we want to put on these, uh, the materiality of things, right. history versus, oh, it's all in your head. It's like spiritual, it's abstract. That maybe has a lot to do with even what you've been writing about how maybe the digital space, like we're all Protestant, quote unquote, on the internet. Yeah, right. Oh, that, that's a really interesting angle. I, I don't want to kind of make unfair generalizations, but yes, I think that sort of more Protestant traditions and I, maybe especially evangelicalism in the American context tends to de-emphasize the role that the body might play in spirituality. And so, you know, the faith becomes a, a much more cognitive affair. It's a matter of holding or asserting certain truths or assenting to certain truths or propositional beliefs. And so, th the other end of that would be more liturgical traditions, whether it's Orthodox or Catholic or some segments of even the Episcopal or Anglican tradition, where the body is more engaged. It's more of a part of what you do in worship and even in your sort of daily private practice of piety. And so, I've noticed that, you know, in my own experience, kind of interacting with, with these various communities and traditions. And, and right, I think my sense has been that, you know, to completely abstract the body from the experience of one's faith is probably a mistake. But, you know, I know there are kind of delicate, kind of theological currents to navigate there amongst the various traditions. But that the idea that online, we are also kind of trading in abstractions or trading in virtual, differently embodied spaces, right? I mean, I've made the argument at least once that, you know, our online experience isn't really disembodied. You know, here I am, right? E even if we couldn't see each other as we can now, right? I'm still doing something with my body, but it's, a, it, you know, what we do with it or whether we relegate it to a kind of secondary position and then emphasize you know, sort of the verbal aspects of communication or the more abstract linguistic elements of communication as opposed to the various ways in which, you know, the body might mediate the act of communication. I think, yeah, there's something interesting there. I mean, just the way you phrase it at the end there caught my attention, you know, that, you know, online we're all Protestants in that way. I might, I might do something with that after I have yeah. a little more time to think about it, but, but that's an interesting way of putting it. Yeah. It'd be interesting to explore that. I, I have, it's almost like we went too far in a certain way as Protestants, you know, throwing out the baby with the bathwater, mm -hmm. where the whole metaphor is like liturgy, which is like those material things you're saying. Um, mm -hmm. You get to a point where the only thing that matters is like this flattening of faith, right? Belief. And when we talk about like salvation, we always talk about like, oh, did you say the prayer that said, I believe in Christ, stuff like mm -hmm. that. And it has nothing to do with like what you do, how you live your life. It's kind of like this reductionism mm -hmm. at the extreme. And then the other side might be like, wow, it looks like they're emphasizing these practices too much. There's too much action and not enough belief. Yeah. And, and I think the, the more nuanced representatives of mm -hmm. both, both poles of that would probably, you know, maybe be closer than what 
Yes. That kind of description, you know, kind of points to, but I think there are tendencies in those directions, definitely. And that has been an interest of mine um, to, to examine not just what we do with our tools, right? Because I guess one way of translating this into the realm of technology is that, you know, we maybe think in very reductionistic ways about how this act is good and this act is bad with regards to what I do with a certain technology. Mm. And yeah, and that, so in that last post that I've put up in the newsletter, I wanted to think a little bit more, just not about what we're doing with it, but thinking about technology, not just in terms of our devices that empower our actions, but it's sort of the texture, the material culture mm. that we kind of just live in day to day and how that you know shapes us maybe in, in subtle ways. I was thinking, I use the example of the difference between an e-reader and a physical book, right? So if I have, you know, I'm staring at some shelves now that have some books that I've accumulated over the years. And and with each one of them, you know, what matters about them to me is not just the content of the book, mm -hmm. the argument of the book itself, but I have a set of associations with them. You know, where have mm. I been with this book? Who gave me this book? Where did I get it? And, and even if I'm thinking of just the intellectual content of the book, its presence in front of me where I might, you know, kind of incidentally glance at it, just sitting here and be reminded of its argument or its, you know, central thesis or whatever, its physical presence matters, right? Mm -hmm. uh, whereas if, if I do all my reading on a Kindle, say, that material presence of the book kind of disappears, right? Because the e-reader presents the same material interface for every book I ever read, right? And it has its advantages and all that, and it's fine. And again, the point here is not to say e-readers are bad. It's simply to try to understand, you know, how they change the presence of just the materiality of the stuff around us, right? And I think that that's not inconsequential. I think it matters and it's worth thinking about. Mm. I love that. I read from McLuhan a while ago. I mean, that's what I mean by almost like this Protestant way of thinking mm -hmm. is that the only question or answer we want is whether something is good or bad. Yeah. It's just saying, let's expand that to mm -hmm. be, you know, it, it really it does explode the kind of questions you're asking. Why is this book next to this other book on the shelf? And you could be like, oh, I remember my friend came to the, my you know, house in this year and this day for this reason. There's a stain on here, and I know why that happened. That's not going to show up in your e-reader. Right. Mostly because I would say that you could probably embed that kind of stuff in the technology. It's just that as a designer, you're not thinking that. Let's do the efficient thing, which is alphabetize, maybe sorted by, I don't know, how much you've read it or like the size, you know, very like quantitative. Yeah, quantitative things. But, you know, you could create an interface that will allow you to add in that stuff. I've seen people where when you read a book, they would take a picture of where they are at. And so it'd be like, I'm in a park at this time mm -hmm. on this day. And that would embed that kind of information. And maybe that would help you if they displayed it in a way that was like kind of spatial. Mm -hmm. So there's no reason why you can't do that. It's just that our interfaces also don't afford that naturally, right? Because right? it's like the bookshelf, it's just there. Right. I think of the idea of, say, lossless compression and how when we put something in digital, we just remove all the information that doesn't matter, right? You know, for the sake of saving space. Yeah. And we lose all this right. other stuff. That, right. You know, like you said, it's not in inconsequential, but we kind of 
don't really focus on it. Maybe we could if we wanted to. Right. I mean, what strikes me about that is precisely the difference between how, and this is just this very specific example we're talking about, I don't have to do anything more mm. than use the book in its most natural way in order for these associations to gather around that, right? So now I hear what you're saying about, yeah, we can maybe figure out ways of trying to incorporate this, but then it, it always, all these moves seem to require a lot of effort, right? A lot of forethought, a lot of intentionality, a lot of follow through, you know, on the part of the user in, in a way that makes it, you know, it's a burden. It's yeah. a burden, right? Yes, right. It, it becomes a kind of burden rather than just sort of being a, just a default way of experiencing the technology, right? And yeah. I don't know that I, I feel like I hear that a lot in a lot of other cases where, like, well, we can recapture this thing that mm -hmm. may be lost, but then when they describe how that would work, I just I can never help but think I'm, I'm never going to do that. <laughs> yeah, no, no, I know. It's just I, I totally yeah. feel that. One example I immediately think of is, I mean, we all everyone has to take notes on stuff eventually. Yeah, yes. And there's even a meme lately. I, I don't know if you've seen that meme with the whole IQ curve thing. The people on the left and the right just use like simple notepad Apple <laughs> yes. notes. And the one in the middle is like all the different tech, you know, like Notion and a OneNote and, you know, whatever, all these. Yeah. I don't even remember all the names. Rome. Right. And I, I've used all those things in the middle a lot. And yeah. I come back to like, I don't want to like set up anything. I just want to yeah. like jot something down yes. and I might yeah. not ever look at it again. I just need that. Yeah. The minimal amount of effort. <laughs> right. Yeah. No, that's a great example. In fact, what did I recently download? Uh, Craft. So it, I haven't used it yet, which says a lot, you know, but anyway, I've attempted some of these online note-taking kind of systems. And at the end of the day, yeah, I just don't stick with it because the simplicity, right, of having a little notebook that I carry around, right, and jotting stuff down, it doesn't, I don't know, I feel like you can't replicate that with these tools, which have, you know, you know, they, they can do their own things. And I know that I'm sure there are users that have figured out yes. great systems with them, et cetera, right? It just doesn't pan out for me. So that in this case, that meme makes, yeah, makes a lot of sense, uh, <laughs> you know, validates me. And I think just going back, it's worth mentioning something you, you alluded to, which is that we don't have, when we go for the most efficient method or tool or device or whatever, when we, you know, you're talking about lossless compression, there's often no way of even accounting for what you're losing Sometimes it's difficult for people to even articulate yes. what it is, what this loss is, you know, or what am I missing out on? And it, it's certainly very difficult to come to quantify, to assign value to. Mm. Right? And these things end up getting lost, getting discounted in part because there's no way of assigning them a value given the, you know, quantitative profit loss orientation of so much of our society there's a lot that's getting lost along the way precisely because of this dynamic, right? We only know how to value and account for certain kinds of effects and consequences and anything that doesn't fit within those categories, there's not even a way to mount an adequate defense of those things. Um, you know, right? I mean, does that make sense? Is that Totally. We have this certain mindset or framework of thinking that we've all kind of soaked ourselves in and we can't get out of it. We can't imagine a world that isn't like that. Right. If someone tries to bring up like, oh, well, we lost this, then it's too easy to just be like, well, you're, you know, too focused on the past. But right. I also think of like, say, like music, you know, people want 
the physical vinyl. Even I feel like this, you've probably heard of like lo-fi um, mm-hmm. right? music. Mm-hmm. And it's interesting because they purposely make the music sound not bad, but like old. Yeah. They put in the crackling sound. Right. It's gotten so popular where now we're generating. So it's like a, we reverse it. We're just automating and optimizing that kind of sound so that even that gets kind of right. lost in a way. Yeah, yeah. I can hear the kind of responses, you know, that you're alluding to, right? That, you know, this is, you know, kind of Luddite uh, tendency or reactionary or romantic or you know, some other adjective of that sort is always kind of used as, as a slur. Even being able to mount a defense, you know, to articulate why something like that matters without, without falling into a romanticism about the past or, you know, a kind of nostalgia, uh, you know, um, I, I, I'm looking for an adjective because I, I actually don't think all forms of nostalgia are bad, but, you know, uh, a kind of reactionary nostalgia about the past that ignores, you know, elements of, you know, injustice or ways in which, you know, life was a lot harder, whatever. I, I grant all of that. And yet, you know, I think when people register a preference for, you know, analog technologies or technologies that are a little less smooth and crisp and efficient, I think they're they're registering a kind of genuine human need for a deeper kind of engagement with mm. with stuff that that's just a little bit more rewarding, even if it's a little harder, a little more you know requires a little bit more of us, but it involves us in ways that are a little more satisfying. And and it's why I kept using this word texture to talk about materiality, you know how it changes texture. And I think we want a measure of texture, right, rather than just a completely smooth experience of the world. So even there, right, I'm struggling to articulate this, and and those are obviously very metaphorical ways of putting it. But yeah, maybe you can go into that a little bit more. What you mean by texture? It's so hard to express that notion. Maybe the language of frictionlessness mm. is is part of this. Uh, I'm not sure how current. That is, I remember writing about this around 2013, 12, 13 or so, mm. where removing friction or frictionlessness was, you know, this great new thing that you know, <laughs> companies, devices, apps were striving for, right? You know, I think a lot of times that amounted to removing any obstacles to, you know, parting you from your money, but it was a larger kind of value, right, that we're going to make things as frictionless as possible. You know, obviously, one always has to make the exception. There are cases where that's probably a good thing to do, right? But when you make it an expansive value that just kind of becomes something you pursue for its own sake under all circumstances, I think you obviously miss out on some things. And the idea here is that we want kind of, you know, I talked about having anchors for the self in that post where I talked about materiality and the book and whatnot. And maybe to tie it back to the beginning of our conversation, right? It's because we are not just minds, right? That we are bodies in space, the material world, not just the ideas that kind of crisscross through our mind, but the material world itself it, is part of the context in which the self evolves and comes to understand itself. Um, so if, if we have fewer and fewer ways of anchoring the self to the material world, I, I think that that's part of what some people feel is lost, right? Our identity becomes, we have a harder time gaining traction, stabilizing over time our experience of the self. A lot of this, I think, that just has to do with memory, right? How we anchor our memories of the self over time. So yeah, I mean, it's a challenge to speak well about this, right? Maybe only the poets can do that. <laughs> but, you know, 
I'm stumbling around trying to do it myself. Yeah, me too. It reminds me of something my other friend posted. I think Chris Kreitcho. Oh yeah, I know Chris. Friction is the friend of serendipity. Interesting. Yeah, yeah. And even thinking about like, if there's no friction, right? I'm thinking about like on ice sliding across. The texture is actually what makes you stop. Those are the anchors. Right. I mean, this is all metaphorical, but no, uh, no, it is right. I don't know. Like the loss of identity, feeling like you're kind of going place to place because you don't have anywhere to even temporarily go. You're just kind of drifting. Right. Exactly. Exactly. I feel like it's a good metaphor. <laughs> right. Right. No. In fact, uh, while you were writing, I, I tracked down this blog post I wrote in 2011. The title was "A Frictionless Life Is Also a Life Without Traction." near the end, you know, I, I talk about Albert Borgman here. I think Borgman's very good a philosopher of technology on these questions. Attraction implies resistance and sometimes trouble, but it also presents us with the opportunity to navigate meaningfully, right? Because it's that idea if you're just on ice, you can't even gain enough traction to have agency over where you're going and what you're doing. I went on to say a frictionless life may promise ease and a certain security, but also leaves us adrift chasing one superficial pleasure after another, never satisfied because we never experienced a struggle against resistance that is essential to a sense of accomplishment. I, I still would stand by that. Another topic would be like video games. There are a lot of mindless games where you don't actually improve on any particular skill. They give you, you know, plus ones and points, right? Mm -hmm. To make you feel like you're progressing based on how much time you put in. And I think that this might be the same if people are trying to gamify people's lives. I, I remember hearing um, a talk from a game designer like, you're going to start getting plus ones when you brush your teeth. Or if you go to the store multiple times, you get this. It's all about trying to get you these external motivations rather than the internal motivation of like, I want to get better. But there are other games where it's actually difficult, right? And so yeah. you have to learn, you know, whether it's making certain jumps, you know, figuring right. out how far things are, those kinds of things. The only way you can progress is people say you need to get good, right? Right, right, yeah. <laughs> and I really like this particular type of game genre called a roguelike. Hmm. And, and you probably never heard of it, but it usually involves what we call permadeath. You have lives. And I guess when you lose, you have to start over from the beginning. And then also it's randomized. So basically every time you play, it's different. Usually when you play a game, you don't have to actually die. Right? It pauses you, you start from some checkpoint and you keep going. It's really easy to kind of get to the end. But in these kind of games, if you fail or you die, you have to start over from the very beginning. So the only way you can actually beat this game is you basically die enough that you learned yeah. how to get past what these obstacles are. And I think that gives you a, a lot of fulfillment because at the end, you know that it was me that I mm -hmm. had the skills to get through this versus like the game just kind of pushed me along. Yeah, I, I put enough hours in it in terms of just straight up time. I, my skill doesn't have to increase at all. If it's all frictionless, at the end of it, you're not really satisfied with right. completing this thing. It's just yeah. kind of like uh, right. entertainment or something. Yeah, and, and of course, I think this is kind of you know, a good segue to Illich. Uh, so <laughs> we, we have to talk about Illich at some point, right? Mm -hmm. So it's the difference between just being a consumer, right? It, uh, and being skilled, developing some measure of skill or competency, which then gives you a sense of accomplishment, sense of, of purpose. Uh, you know, I think that anchors your identity to some degree helps you to contribute to the life of the community, et cetera. Whereas the, the alternative is that we know only how to consume services and things and goods that demand nothing of us, never satisfy us, just gin up more desire for the same. It says we're going to talk about Illich. <laughs> I've been listening to a lot of John McKnight. I think he helped him with medical nemesis and also disabling professions, I think. Mm -hmm. Okay. Yeah. But a lot of his work 
is around the language of needs in, in terms of community, in terms of what you were saying about being consumer. And his point was, in order for the community to grow, the institution will never help the community grow because the institution is an outsider, you know, a third party. They're coming in to fix your problems. Mm -hmm. And of course, they're looking at this community from the point of deficiencies and needs. He was coming into like a university setting and all the studies are all what he would say are the glass half empty. Let's find out all the, I don't know, drug problems in the city and then figure out how to pay these people to help those people. Mm -hmm. And he was saying, why aren't there studies that tell you which communities have figured it out basically on their own? He found the principles of how to grow a community from the point of gifts mm. rather than needs. Seeing people that they all have gifts. Very different, right. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. It's sort of like what you said, like playing this game and feeling accomplished. People need community and people need to feel like they're being valued in their community by mm. using whatever gifts that they have, especially what he would call labeled people. We label them based on their disabilities rather than their gifts. Right. And it's difficult because it's easy to just say, yeah, let's just pay for something or I guess separate people, isolate them into different places or like something like that. Yeah. 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 That certainly resonates with Illich. Yeah, I can definitely see the affinity. I don't know where we went with that. <laughs> but that was that was interesting. I want to go deeper into what I thought was the Protestant mindset or whatever you want to call yeah, it. Yeah, I mean, I'd have to, I'd want to think about it a little bit mm -hmm. more. Otherwise, I think I'd just be kind of... I'm happy to just spend some time thinking about it too. With podcasts, we always want to say immediately what I'm thinking. No, no, but you're right. I mean, it's fine. I'm fine to try to hash it out. I just don't want to give you nothing. <laughs> yeah. I mean, if you want to start off and tell me some of what you were thinking, you know, along those lines, I'm happy to think yeah. out loud with you. Yeah. I guess I kind of go to James K. Smith's work on liturgies and habits. The first of that trilogy of books that he wrote. Yes. Yeah. 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 Ties a lot into McLuhan. I kind of find everything going back to the medium is the message stuff. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. I, even I, the materiality, the texture you were talking about of the world, isn't that like our medium? That's the medium, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Definitely. It's the stuff of life. So when we reduce, when we flatten life by digitizing things and we kind of lose those other, what we call them, things that we can't even say, we lose like the medium or the medium becomes, you know, something else. I don't know. It, right. It, it changes, right? So the medium changes and the most important effects are not often the ones that we immediately perceive. I don't know, maybe this example will help. One thing that I occurred to me after I wrote that post, but I recently took my girls to their first baseball game. So I don't know, for me, I'm a baseball fan. It was a big deal for them. They really enjoyed it. And oh, there were I had no paper ticket to save, right? I had to use an app and that app was our tickets. There was no little bit of, no memento, right? No artifact, right? Whereas, you know, I recently kind of shifted offices. And so I, you know, unpacked a few boxes and went through some old stuff. And, you know, I found the ticket to my first baseball game, uh, which was a spring training game in the 1990s before the Marlins came to South Florida, went, went to watch the Mets and the Yankees play. And so this whole set of memories, right, comes back because I have this little physical artifact that takes me back. And I think people of a certain age would resonate with this. I mean, up until pretty recently, I suppose, right? Maybe even just up until the pre-COVID period, mm. you know, you would have something like this where increasingly we've digitized all these interactions, right? So there's no material trace that's left behind in a way that, you know, I can, you know, stumble upon it, 
you know, 10 years from now or whatever. Right. right? And, and like you said earlier, people are introducing that digitally, but it's just not the same. You could have a history of, you know, every ticket that you bought yes. that's digital and you could put it on an NFT, all that stuff. <laughs> right. <laughs> and they have these new apps. They'll be like, oh, you took this picture like a year ago. And I think yeah. those genuinely do help, but it's not just stuck in this pocket in a code. Yeah, no, I think my wife had one of those apps for a while. It would kind of collect your photos across various apps. And it was on this day, I forget what it was. And it yeah. was interesting because it was also gamified with the streak function. You'd, you'd get a little record of how many days in a row you'd done it or something like that. But to me, this is a really interesting point because I, I think this kind of echoes something we were talking about a little bit ago. We find ourselves trying to create very artificial ways of replicating things that had been just default modes of interaction or just default outcomes. And I find that one interesting th thing that that does is it makes things much more conscious, right? We're much mm. more self-conscious about what we're trying to do in a way that is has its own interesting consequences. Paralyzing maybe, it heightens itself in a certain way, anxiety inducing. There are a lot of knock-on effects, second-order effects, from even that desire to try to compensate for these losses in ways that are now much more artificial rather than, you know, embedded mm. in the actions themselves, internal to the actions themselves, right? Which is different than trying to layer some additional process or series of steps or whatever onto something just to replicate what would have been ordinarily captured anyway by the action itself. It's almost like you're not able to acknowledge the medium is the message, actually. If you think about it, trying to replicate that thing digitally is not being able to understand that if you do that, you're actually creating another environment that right. has a whole different set of behaviors yes. that happens. There's no, nothing can be one-to-one, -one, right? Everything right. is always going to be different. That's why people don't like reading the same book because they're like, well, I already read the content, but it's like you are different as a person. And yeah. You know, like, the context has changed. That's right. I mean, that's well put, right? You're just escalating, in a sense, you know, the problem, right? You think, well, there's this kind of loss or this, this thing I need to compensate for, so I'll just introduce one more tool or technique to do so. And then you've just sort of introduced a whole new set of, you, you've not only failed to recapture what you think you're recapturing, right? You've introduced a whole new host of issues. And not all of these necessarily pan out in catastrophic ways or anything like that. But but I, I feel like we're constantly chasing something mm. that we can't quite capture or recapture as the case may be, and then generating other effects that we still haven't fully you know comprehended. Like this inability to just inhabit moments and actions as they come. Right? As they come, right? But yeah. but that we're forced into modes of heightened self-consciousness. I think that that actually has a lot to do with the inability to maybe, you know, move forward. Even socially, if I think of this at the kind of collective level, you know, we're kind of trapped in these doom loops of self-consciousness and self-awareness. We're unable to sort of, I don't know, imagine alternatives or simply be. You know, <laughs> be. Yeah, right. Exactly. I almost feel like that this practice of digitizing things or wanting to recreate is like the habit that we're creating because we're trying to chase after what I would just say, capturing things. If we want to speak from a Lichian point of view, he has like this famous, I'm not, it's not famous, but like I, I keep um, thinking about it where someone was trying to take a picture of him when he was giving a talk and then he just shouts 
in the middle of his talk. You can't capture me. Oh, interesting. Yeah. <laughs> I thought that was so funny. Um, but also, you know, in a, in a way, he's right. Maybe we feel like we can capture these moments in time. And we do feel like a picture captures a moment in time. But the picture will never bring you back to that moment, right? right? What it was like. And we could try to simulate the sounds and the smells and all these things, just like we're trying to do with the metaverse. But it's not yeah. going to be the same, right? Yes. I mean, that dynamic of trying to capture the moment, document the moment. Yeah, that, that's so pervasive. I mean, I, wonder, I, I used to think about that a lot more. And I wonder to what degree, has that changed? Do you feel like that has changed, like that impulse to document? I think of that as being a very sort of early social media kind of instinct. I'm not sure how much that is the case anymore, but I, I mean, I think to, to some degree it is, right? You know, I'm, I'm certainly tempted by that. Well, I think as someone that does podcasts, you might start feeling like I need to record every conversation that I have because there's something good. There's devices that are always on. You, it's probably default on and then when you need it 30 seconds back i can like save that but you're conscious that you're being recorded all the time but right. i also think maybe it's not as big a deal just because we are doing that all the time you know everyone is trying to capture what's going on in their lives and it's like i watch twitch right but one of the most popular categories um, is not video games it's irl in real life and it's like these streamers Maybe they were famous through video games, but now they're just basically, you know, celebrities um, like YouTubers and they just stream them doing random stuff or yeah, just yeah. being in their home, like cooking food or whatever. And that is their whole life, right? Yeah. That is curious because that harkens back to very early internet days or very early, maybe web two days. I remember there was a documentary to this effect. I wrote about it in some essay I wrote about privacy at one point a long time ago. I forget the name of the documentary, but it, it was somebody who basically subjected himself and a group of friends to 24-7 surveillance. And, and I think that that kind of stuff was more popular in that era. So interesting to kind of see that kind of come back. I, I think of that too. You know, I've, I've often thought that reality TV was, you know, such a perfect prelude to the social media era that in many ways it prepped our consciousness to then just put our lives online, right? Watching it, it, people. And it gets kind of worse because it's, you know, the way they make money is through, it's actually hard to do that. It's not just a YouTube video. You can edit it, make it short. A lot of yeah. live streams, you can just say it's boring. Yeah. And so right. if they have a contract signed with a stream a certain number of hours per month, then, you know, how do you fill up that time? So a lot of people aren't creative enough or it's just, it, you know, it's not, you can still get a lot of views if you're famous by right. just eating some food. You don't have to create this whole like, you know, setup. Yeah. And so a lot of times people just end up watching their own YouTube videos or other streamers as the stream, which is so meta. <laughs> it just gets kind of like, wow, what is going on? Right, right. <laughs> no, that's incredible. But it is that you use the word extracting not too long ago. That's been my one fundamental take about the metaverse, right? And maybe this is the difference I was trying to get at. You know, when I think of early social media, you know, I think of a lot of very conscious documentation of the self and presentation of the self, whereas now it's being, you know, captured. I think the, the focal point has shifted from the self as we capture it in a televisual way to the capturing of data, just data from all realms of our experience, whether it's, you know, data about the bodies that our Fitbits gather, ambient data about our consumption habits, the way a lot of smart devices are, you know, designed to capture data about our consumption habits as well, to automate that consumption. 
And so it's less about that older ideal. I do think it's also the case that, you know, maybe even Gen X brings the old televisual ideals of the self as celebrity into the early social media world. That has changed and shifted to something a little bit different, although I'm not sure I can articulate you know, how exactly it's changed. But I think we're in a realm now where it's less about the active presentation of the self for most people and more about kind of the ambient capturing of, of mm. data that reveals preferences ostensibly and, you know, automates all forms of content intake and consumption, which has its, you know, its own set of issues or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. I guess maybe that fits into you know, we're always talking about algorithms now. Right? Yeah. You flatten everyone's inputs into some data set, and then that turns into like what you're supposed to watch. Even live stream fits in with this ambient thing you're talking about. It's not like most people are necessarily watching someone as the main focus of what they're doing. They're cooking food or, you know, running or something. Uh, it's just like in the background, like, you know, right. having TV in the background. Right, right. And that's interesting in of itself. But I don't know that I ever completed a thought of extraction, right? So we want to extract. Mm. And often, you know, for the sake of, I mean, in the case of the, you know, the people who are live streaming and have a you know platform and contracts, well, obviously it's a form of income, right? You're generating income for yourself by, you know, basically extracting your private life, right? Or what, what would presumably be your private life. Everything now can just be a source of production, right? It has no integrity. Uh, on its own terms, except as a potential source of content. Yeah. It's interesting because I spent a lot of time watching this stuff too. <laughs> so yeah. it's not like I'm trying to say this is bad or yeah. like whatever, but I'm also trying to understand like what's going on. And I think yeah, people that do that, they are very open about their lives and that can obviously be bad and good in so many different ways. But it's interesting hearing when they're not on, right? They're not on their live stream voice or whatever. And because there's so much time, right? People will just act like themselves and just be honest about how they feel. But then you can't tell if it's like, is that for the live stream or is that just them? Yeah. But sometimes like people will share. And like one of them I thought was interesting was they're just speaking about how you have to evaluate whether that game is going to be good for your viewership. Mm -hmm. um, the game might be just fun, but if no one will watch it, mm -hmm. it actually hurts you because if you play the game that no one watches, that actually might make people not want to watch you later right, or right. like they start tuning to someone else. Or you could not stream it. You just play it for fun offline. Right. But then you're like, well, I'm not making money. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's another case of you're kind of conforming to the, the platform, to, right? to the medium, yeah. to the platform. Right. Exactly. Whether it's what plays well, you know, in that medium what, or, or whether we think of it strictly as consumer demand or whatever. But right. That's dictating, you know, what you're able to do. Right. Right. And then you might even play games that you don't even want to play, but then they're paying you to do it. Maybe with a podcast, you can only talk about certain topics or it has to be right. timely. So you're doing it every week. Right. I almost feel like I want to do the exact opposite. Never take sponsors. You know, I was trying to edit some of the ones I did last year. I was like, oh, this is still pretty good. <laughs> you know? It still feels like relevant because we're talking about things that apply across hopefully mm -hmm. multiple years it's not just like oh yeah. this week this happened or right or this topic that trended for 24 hours right yeah and uh, you know i don't know to go back to this idea of things we have a hard time articulating quantifying defending whatever the we here you know obviously very generic right but there was a a recalibration of the private versus the public self all right the private versus the public life 
that digital media has enabled. And I don't know that we have quite reckoned with the consequences of that. You know, to some degree, this maybe even has something to do with the self-consciousness that I was talking about earlier, that we afford ourselves time when we're not in the public eye at all, right? Where we're not thinking of what we're doing as being potentially for the public eye. You know, that there are aspects of our lives that we do think of as private, right? I don't know. I mean, obviously, you know, for maybe the majority of people that maybe that hasn't changed all that much. I don't want to make the influencer, uh, you know, the YouTuber, the norm. Uh, They're obviously still, you know, kind of exceptional case. I I think everybody who has a presence on social media, unless they're kind of content with just kind of lurking and just being someone who watches and listens in or whatever, you know, you, you have to generate something, right? Whether it's quippy sentences or memes or, you know, images for your Instagram account, what maybe would have been conceived as being private life now becomes fodder for this kind of public presentation of a self. And and I might even have committed the sin of tweeting this thought that there are goods that are proper to the public realm and there are goods that are proper to the private realm. And in blurring the two, we've kind of lost those two sets of goods, right? So it's in a way we've I, maybe corrupted is too strong of a word, but you know we've kind of corrupted public life with private elements of the self and invaded private life with the public in ways that have kind of disturbed the right balance, the right order of both of those spheres. I don't know. Does that make sense? Yeah. Some people now, they don't want a distinction between right, the private yes, and the public. Yeah. Or maybe by putting ourselves so much in public, what's the difference? And I think that a lot of us share these very deep, intimate moments about our lives online. And that doesn't mean it's everything, but like, you know, yeah. people will share when they get married, they have kids, when they change their job. If you think about all these big events, we want to put that on there. Yeah. And of course, we all want to share these moments, but it's also weird because everyone else sees it too. And they're not going to have the context or relationship with you to even make that meaningful to you other than making your likes go up. Yeah. And I, I mean, I, I want to be careful on two fronts here. So I've mentioned two things so far, right? The televisual ideal of the self that we carry into the early social media period, the way in which reality television, mid-late 90s, early 2000s kind of preps us for that. The third thing maybe is is loneliness, right? You know, throughout the mid to late 20th century, you know, there's a lot of work done on, you know, the, 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 the pervasive nature of loneliness, right? Anonymity, mass society, you know, the individual is lost. You know, I think bowling alone comes out in 2000. And so I think we bring an experience of loneliness and alienation also into that early social media period. And social media promises connection, right? Promises to alleviate that loneliness, to give us people who will hear us and listen to us tell our story or share our lives. I imagine there must be some solace in that, or at the very least, that's a legitimate desire for which we seek a satisfaction, right? The desire may be framed as a desire for companionship, to be known, to be affirmed, et cetera. You know, so I think in describing how social media, digital media, the internet in general, kind of shapes us or whatever we're we're trying to do, I do think it's important to acknowledge that desire as a legitimate desire that maybe drives a lot of what we do, even if I might have issues with the way in which social media addresses that desire or or fails to. And then the other thing too I want to acknowledge is, you know, 
I mean, people need to make a living. Some people have found a way to make a living. I don't know. I just think it's very easy to, it's probably too easy to criticize people for, for what they're doing when from one perspective, you know, we could say, look, it's hard to get by. And some people are trying to be creative about how they do that. I don't want to judge that too harshly. I mean, I think ideally, you know, there are ways of kind of negotiating all these things, maybe better, worse ways of doing it. But yeah, I think people want companionship. People need to find a way to make a living in the world. So I think at the very least, those always need to be kind of caveats in our critiques or nuance the way we think about these trends and developments. Totally. I mean, it's funny because in some sense, that is how I make my living. So yeah. I'm just critiquing my own <laughs> right. self, I guess. I don't know. I want to critique it as someone that is participating in this mm-hmm. space. So hopefully from a loving heart. <laughs> right. Yeah. Oh, and being, you know, inside of it and trying to navigate mm-hmm. it, you know, in a sense, you know, once we're talking about something we might deem altogether illicit, right? But that, you know, otherwise, you know, this is what we can hope for, right? To kind of thoughtfully participate in these arenas and find out from experience rather than just as a kind of outside observer, you know, whether they're, you know, wise and virtuous ways of navigating these spaces, you know, and humane ways of being in them rather than just allowing, you know, the demands of the machine or the system or the, you know, the network to completely overtake us and shape us. Yeah. Right. And I think that goes back to what we were talking about with like a certain mindset doesn't have to be Protestant or whatever. That was just my funny label for it. Yeah, like, right. you know, one could be like, well, the future of, you know, work is everyone live streams. And the other one is like, oh, this stuff is really bad. We should get rid of it. I think this is going to be here to stay. It's not going to go away. So how do we think about doing this in maybe some more thoughtful ways? Right. And it may be the case. I do think refusal needs to be an, a live option, mm. right? There are cases where we might affirm without too many qualms, right? Just affirm, endorse, embrace a new technology or device or pattern or whatever. I think probably most of the time what we're doing is something more like negotiating, right? We're negotiating the best terms. We realize that there's some benefits that accrue. We recognize at the same time that there are some harms or some consequences that we're maybe less sanguine about. And so what we're trying to do is navigate, negotiate, so then I want to say the third option is refusal, right? And I think there is, the, you know, for certain people under certain conditions, depending on their moral outlook, how they're situated, they may conclude the best option is to refuse and that that's a perfectly legitimate option as well. Yeah, the concern is just being able to opt out. And I guess that goes back to like Illich and the feeling that you may be forced to do something because there are no more options, whether it's legally or culturally, right? Maybe there's some universe out there where everyone has to live stream for some reason, you know? Right. Uh, and I'd rather someone do live stream and do YouTube than they just work some random nine to five job. At least maybe they can be creative about it. The fact that they have the ability to try something else, I think that's great. I think that's right. I mean, there, every era has presented us with demeaning forms of human labor, right? And so anytime where we increase the freedom of individuals, genuinely, right? I think the Mm -hmm. catch here is always, you know, what is sometimes offered as increased freedom is often just another form of entrapment. But, but, Mm -hmm. you know, if there are genuine avenues for a greater degree of independence and self-sufficiency and, and development of, of personal skills and capacities, those are always to be, you know, valued and preferred, I think. 
Mm-hmm. I'm not sure where this fits in. And you've wrote about this too. When you talk about private and public, I also think of Jane Jacobs's sidewalk life too. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the kind of gradients of relationality, you know, between that spectrum of private and public, right? Right. Trying to figure out what is sidewalk life on online? Does that exist? Right. And it's funny because that's another case of that pattern that we talked about at the, the outset, which is that it just happened by default in the setting that she was describing, right? You just the arrangement of the space was such, you know, you walk out, you pass your neighbors, you're you're going to the local market. And so you have all of these interactions that are not the kinds of interactions you have in your home where you invite people into your private spheres, but neither are they, you know, completely anonymous interactions, right? You come to know your neighbors to a certain degree, you come to know the grocer to a certain degree, you are known by them. But it's not happening because you're going out of your way to do it. It's happening because it's the, the arrangement of space, housing, and you know, commercial space, et cetera. Whereas now, you know, if you live in the suburbs, the way they're constituted, and you want to re- reconstitute some kind of community in that way, it will not be organic, right? You have to, you know, drive somewhere. You know, you have to coordinate people's schedules, which are now kind of all you know, off kilter, you find yourself again trying to artificially reconstitute what had been a kind of organic, just default way of being. Yeah. And and maybe that's the only thing you can do, right? Maybe, you right. Know, so if I want to have friends, I don't know, there was some meme going around Twitter. I didn't catch the origin of it, but it was one variation of it. You know, by the time you're 30, you should have friends. And it's like, well, I mean, sure, that's nice. If I haven't been forced to move and relocate, <laughs> if the way that I've had to make a living hasn't kind of precluded a social life, uh, yeah, there are all sorts of caveats to that. Uh, but ideally, yes, and maybe you know, what it, it just requires us to be more intentional in this way, artificial, if you like. You know, maybe that's too pejorative a way of putting it. But I don't know. I mean, it would be nice if our material environment, our socioeconomic environment was more conducive to you know, the formation of friendship, for example, and we didn't have to f- go fight against the grain of the environment in order to achieve that, which I think is what we're often doing. Are we going to have to go against the grain of our material environment to achieve some of the goods that we want for our lives? One can imagine a world where it isn't that way, right? Where the grain of our social environment is such that it is conducive to human flourishing, conducive to relationships, et cetera. That's, you know, of course, very easy for me just to say that, right? <laughs> to declare that, right? Yeah, I mean, I guess it just speaks to just the difficulty and maybe impossibility of designing a world, the digital space is that, I think you use the word built environment. It's artificial in that way, not that it's like a, a negative thing, but yeah. just simply that we have to build everything from scratch. Yeah. Uh, and like you said, recreate all these things that just don't, we can't even use the same assumptions. Actually, that's one of the, problems with tech, we aren't able to embody, if that's impossible, what's in this space enough to just come up with new ideas or primitives that is better suited for the digital space, rather than just trying to tack on, like, we've always talked about how to emulate talking, we create Zoom or something. It's not quite the same. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I think at the core of a lot of that, in, in each of these cases, the body is displaced as the focal point of our experience in ways that have inevitable consequences. And again, you know, maybe it's fine sometimes, right? You know, I'm glad to be able to chat with you in this way. You know, if all my interactions were this way, you know, <laughs> as it was for some people during the early days of quarantine, for example, right? That mm-hmm. That's a problem. Some people ch- choose that or to be forced into that kind of mode, you know, is a problem. 
But right, I think in in the digital space that there is no, I've tried to argue, it's not, not a place. And so our bodies can enter into it in the same way. And I, I think this will still be the case even with kind of immersive VR environments. You're not going to be able to replicate the kinds of interactions, you know, where the human body is at the center, right, of our experience. And we're not just acting telepresently in some mode or another. I think you've written that it's also like the digital is always the past. Oh, um, yeah. Well, recently, yes. It always turns our gaze to the past, right? I, I think of the experience of a timeline on Twitter or Facebook, or whatever. Right? It's always receding into the past, right? Even if it's the very recent past, right? but it is always to what has happened. And then we just sort of layer, you know, levels of discourse over things that have happened. And all of it is just kind of accumulating in the past. And it kind of sucks our attention, our, our sense of purpose, even our imagination, all of it just sort of gets sucked into these massive digital archives of the past. If you were having a conversation argument in person, it's all happening in the present. But with Twitter, even though they could have said it a second ago, people are responding to someone else's second ago. Right. And I feel like it's the same with what I was saying with live stream. People are watching live streams of someone else's live stream, of some video. It's like, it becomes too meta. There's no coherent narrative or situation or anything. Right. There's nothing propelling us productively forward, I guess, is part of what I'm trying to capture, right? With any form of media you're always dealing in the past in a sense, right? So when you, when somebody wrote a letter and somebody received, they're receiving something from three days past or a week past or whatever. You read the morning newspaper in 1985, you're reading things that were printed the night before, right? Or published overnight, whatever. But it's the preponderance, I think. So the preponderance of our activity or somebody who's extremely online, say, their gaze is always turned to this moment just before now, right? They're not inhabiting the present, and their action is building this archive of the past, and they're being sucked into it. You know, I don't want to exempt myself from it, right? And there's nothing to turn our gaze forward or to give us the freedom to think about what may come or how we might be in the future or to just inhabit the present. It's always, again, this gaze turned pastward. <laughs>